In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to begin our discussion of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the Church. And in particular, we're going to look at two questions. What is the Catholic Church? Is it the only Church? And what is the condition for salvation for those who do not belong to the Church? Please stick around. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. I am very excited today to be starting the first episode on Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the Church from the Second Vatican Council. I hope you've enjoyed uh, the previous episodes in our Vatican II series. Um, I really am encouraged by some of the reactions that we're getting and some of the comments, so I really appreciate all of you who have been um, following along. So this document uh, is, as I said, it's called the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. That's its English title, um, and the Latin title is Lumen Gentium. It was uh, approved at the end of the third session of the Council in 1964. So you'll remember um, the Council started in 1962. The first session concluded without issuing any documents. The second session concluded, and they issued the document on the liturgy. The third doc, uh, session concluded, um, and they issued this document. Maybe been some other small ones at the th- at the end of the third session, although I'm not totally sure. But in terms of major documents, this was the only uh, only one issued at the close of that third session. And so, Lumen Gentium um, in Latin means "Light of the Nations," and that really gives you a very like succinct summary of what this whole document is about. And it's the idea that Christ is the light of the nations and that the church needs to bring that light to the nations. Uh, the, the church needs to give people the light of Christ by whatever means of evangelization necessary. Uh, it's, it's a much long, longer document than the document on the liturgy, um, and because of that, what we're going to be doing is we'll do basically three installments on just this document. Um, it's it's about 70 chapters long, and in the edition that I'm using, uh, which is the, the Word on Fire um, Vatican II collection, which, which I think is really excellent, uh, if you don't already have the documents of Vatican II and you just want the major ones, um, this is a really helpful edition. And um, so in, in this version, it's about 100 pages. So it's quite a bit longer than the uh, document on the liturgy, which we covered in two episodes. So this episode, we're just going to focus on chapter 1 and 2 of Lumen Gentium. The actual document is cut up into eight different chapters. So this, this episode, part 1, we're going to do chapters 1 and 2. On part 2, we'll focus on chapters 3, 4, and 5, and then the third part of the Lumen Gentium uh, episodes. We'll do chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, uh, I've mentioned in an earlier episode that the Second Vatican Council 
Uh, it gets the title Second Vatican Council or Vatican II because it's a second council that has been hosted in the Vatican. Councils are given names based on where they're hosted. And it's so it gets that title because it's the second one hosted at the Vatican uh, historically, but also in, in a thematic sort of way, a lot of what's taking place or what, what took place at Vatican II was meant to sort of finish uh, or complete or complement the work that happened in Vatican I. So at the first Vatican Council, which was interrupted because of a war, uh, there was a, a plan to publish dozens and dozens of documents. I can't remember how many, but it's a large number. And they wound up only getting through two documents. Um, and one of the concerns at the time, this in the 1800s, was to address ecclesiology or the nature of what the church is. And they had, they started their way down that path um, and, and got so far as kind of defining papal infallibility. So they in, in considering the church, they were going to start with the pope and then work their way down uh, to consider all the other responsibilities and, and things that, that, that need to, to be um, clarified or, or updated since the Council of Trent, right? What is the church? How is it supposed to function in the world? Those sorts of things. And they didn't get very far. Um, so Lumen Gentium is really the document that most clearly is kind of finishing a project that was began that was begun at the first Vatican Council, and that's to consider um, the nature of the church, its function, its mission, its members, the relationship between the church and other people who who may not be members of the church, and that sort of thing. So it's a very broad um, kind of concept. In chapters one and two which we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, they're, they're focusing, the Council Fathers are focusing on, in chapter one, this idea of the mystery of the Church, and then in chapter two, uh, the title of that chapter is On the People of God. So if you're playing the at-home game, um, today's episode is just going to cover the first 17 chapters, uh, or sorry, paragraphs of uh, Lumen Gentium. So right at the, at the outset of the document, um, one of the things that, that's really interesting about uh, church documents is is the first couple of sentences of any document give you a really good sense of what they're about. And uh, we have in the opening, I'm, I'll read just the opening couple sentences of Lumen Gentium, this is what you read. Christ is the light of nations. Because this is so, this sacred synod gathered together in the Holy Spirit eagerly desires by proclaiming the gospel to every creature to bring the light of Christ to all men a light brightly visible on the countenance of the church. And so right at the outset, you have this, this clear concern that what the Second Vatican Council wants to do is bring Christ to the nations. And we already saw a little bit of that in the document on the liturgy. That was why liturgy was so important, uh, because above all, worship of God is what's the most important thing. Um, so they start with that. But there's the same concern for bringing Christ to to the people, to the the gentes, to to the to the uh, to the world, um, and so that concern for evangelization really runs its way through uh, throughout most of this document. Um, and the first chapter of of Lumen Gentium, um, in a particular way, talks about uh, the function of the church in the world, why we have a church. Later on in the document, and we'll see these in other episodes, the fathers will go on to address specific members of the church. So there's there's a, a chapter on the hierarchy, there's a chapter on the laity, on religious, um, and there's there's um, a chapter on the universal called holiness and some other topics. But these first two chapters 
really are laying out a much broader vision of what the church is, what it's for, what it's supposed to be doing, what its mission is. And the overall vision that the Council Fathers lay out in this first chapter is very, very closely tied to an understanding of salvation history. And we also saw a salvation history approach used in the discussion of the liturgy. So one of the things that's tying the, the, the council together is this notion of salvation history. And you're going to see that again when we get to the document on Revelation. So the church uh, fathers begin this council, or this document rather, by saying that God has created everything that exists by his free will, and he wants to raise men to a participation in the divine life. That was God's goal at creation. Of course, after creation doesn't get very far before there's the fall. So what God does after the fall is he wants to continue that goal of raising human beings into the participation in the divine life, but he's going to have to do this differently now. And so God embarks on um, offering salvation to people through covenants that are issued by mediators. And the document says that uh, the church was prepared in a remarkable way, or may say prefigured in a remarkable way, throughout the history of the people of Israel and by means of the Old Covenant. So what the document is trying to say here at the beginning is that the Catholic Church's own understanding of what it is is deeply connected to the people of Israel and the Old Testament. In other words, that it is not a, a brand new institution that just popped into being, you know, in the life of Christ, but rather that it has its deepest roots in salvation history in the Old Covenants. Um, so it, it sort of traces through, here's creation, then we have the covenants with Israel, then Jesus is sent by God the Father, and the idea of Jesus being sent is to complete the work that was begun in the Old Covenant by a new covenant. And uh, Lumen Gentium identifies the church uh, with this language. It says that the church is the kingdom of Christ now present in mystery. And then further notes that all men are called to this union with Christ, who is the light of the world. So something really important to realize um, at the beginning of this dogmatic constitution on the church is that there's a abundantly clear idea that the church is the instrument of salvation, and everyone is called to uh, be a member of this church. Everyone should be united with Christ, who is the light of the world, and Christ um, is present fully in the Catholic Church. Um, so the desire of the council— as uh, the, the document meditates on the mystery of the church, is clearly that everybody ought to be gathered in to this one structure of the church. And this also connects to salvation history. So um, one of the things that's kind of floating around in the background be behind the text um, is this notion of the way the covenants expanded in Israel. If you read the Old Testament with an eye toward covenants, what you'll see is there's different covenant mediators that are given a mission, a particular mission at a particular time uh, by God, and um, as those covenants, as salvation history progresses, the covenants are involving larger groups of people. So you have Adam and Eve, then you have Noah, then you get to um, Abraham, then Moses, David, and each of those, the, the, the people of God are expanding tremendously, and there's a clear goal even in the Old Testament that 
the people of God in the Old Testament would become universal, that all nations would gather um, under into, into the one um, covenant membership, right? And that same hope is clearly laid out here um, at the beginning of this document that everyone, all men are called to this union with Christ, which we find in the church. So uh, very, very just big fundamental point. And so we see this here, for instance, uh, in in paragraph five of the document. Uh, th- this is a, a, a really good quote. So this is from paragraph five. From this source, the church, equipped with the gifts of its founder and faithfully guarding his precepts of charity, humility, and self-sacrifice, receives the mission to proclaim and to spread among all peoples the kingdom of Christ and of God. So really, again, just because I think it really needs emphasis, the the documents of the council, very, very clear on how important the church is and the fact that everybody is called to it. So one of the things that you may hear um, is that, you know, Vatican II under, downplays the importance of the church or downplays downplays the importance of, of um, evangelization and calling people to union with, with the church is, is just really not true to the text of the documents. Um, so uh, starting there, I want to jump off to—obviously, we can't cover everything, but something that, that really stood out to me is uh, this incarnational analogy that's used in paragraph 8 to explain— um, the nature of the church, right? So it doesn't take somebody living in our day in 2022 to see, you know, there's there's scandals in the church and there's difficulties and there's sinners in the church. So does that mean the whole thing is falling apart? Like this has been, if you know church history, that's always, just, just always happens. People are faced with the divine constitution of the church. Christ founded it on Peter and it's a mess. And how do those things go together? There's a really, really beautiful way um, that the document Lumen Gentium tries to get at that problem. So I just want to read real briefly and comment a little bit on um, the way that they, out, they, they lay this out. So this is the beginning of paragraph 8. Christ, the one mediator, established and continually sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity, as an entity with visible delineation— through which he communicated truth and grace to all. But the society structured with hierarchical hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ, so the hierarchy and this notion of the mystical body of Christ, anytime you see mystical body of Christ in the documents of Vatican II, almost every time, they are referring uh, to the papacy of Pius XII and um, his encyclicals in particular, Mystici Corporis Christi, um, and sometimes Mediator Dei. In other words, they're building off the work of Pius XII. Um, so anyhow, the, the hierarchy on one hand and then the mystical body on the other hand, it says, are not to be considered as two realities, right? So it's not like there's a visible church with its members and they're all screwed up, and then there's the mystical body that's present among the saints, and, and some way it's sort of intangible, and you kind of can't get a hold of it, and you never know where it is. No, rather it says they're not to be considered as two realities, nor are the visible assembly and the spiritual community, nor the earthly church and the church enriched with heavenly things. Rather, they form one complex reality, which coalesces from a divine and a human element. Now, 
this is the line that that, that really stru- struck me as I was preparing for this recording. For this reason, by no weak analogy, it, the church, is compared to the mystery of the incarnate Word. And so what does that mean? Well, Christ has a human nature and a divine nature, and they are intimately related to one another and inseparable from one another. And in just the same way, the church itself has its visible structure, has its you know, members living on earth, and its spiritual dimension, um, which is which is in heaven, or the earthly and the heavenly, the visible and the spiritual. Um, th- those two are united just as much as the human and divine nature of Christ, right? Of course, it's an analogy, but it's not, I like how they say it, but it's not a weak analogy. So the, the, the paragraph goes on to sort of emphasize this, and then shortly after that, there is this uh, discussion about um, where the one church may be found. So this is still in paragraph eight. Some of these, I think you may have a weird idea that, you know, this is, uh, we're only going to talk about 17 paragraphs, but just this paragraph, paragraph eight, uh, is about two pages long. So I'll just give you an idea. Here's here's a key line, and, and something that does cause a lot of people um, some difficulty and some frustration, so I want to talk about it a little bit. This is the one Church of Christ, which in the Creed is professed as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned to commissioned Peter to shepherd, and him and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Although many elements of sanctification and truth are found outside of its visible structure, these elements, as gifts belonging to the Church of Christ, are forces impelling toward a Catholic unity. So this line that the church subsists in, the, that the true church subsists in the Catholic church um, causes some people, you know, difficulty. Why doesn't it say that the, the true church is the Catholic church? And in fact, it's been such a, there was such controversy over it that the church um, later released a, a separate document, and I think it was in the year 2000, um, clarifying what is meant by the language of subsists in. Um, and this is the the explanation, and this is one of the really cool things about this Word on Fire um, Vatican II collection. And just so that there's no confusion, I'm not making any money if you buy it. I just really do like it. Um, so it includes commentary from this document, Dominus Jesus, which was issued um, during the, pontificate, the pontificate of John Paul II, about what exactly that means that the Church subsists in. So I'll just read briefly. Um, it says, with the expression subsists in... The Second Vatican Council sought to harmonize two doctrinal statements, okay? So on the one hand, the Council wants to affirm that the Church of Christ, despite the divisions which exist among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church, and at the same time to acknowledge it on the other hand, many elements of sanctification and truth are found outside of its visible structure. But remember, any of those elements that are present in any other, you know, uh, group are only gifts of the one church, and they are supposed to be forces which can help us to build towards Catholic unity. So this is one of the things that this document, Lumen Gentium, does really get into is 
trying to sort of parse out for the modern world, right, where there are fewer assumptions that everybody is on the same page, that everybody's Catholic, that everybody knows what the Church teaches, when, when, when the situation is not that you can assume that anymore, what are the chances of salvation? What are—is the Church, in fact, still necessary for salvation? And the, the answer is going to be loud and clear, absolutely yes, but also there's a little bit more refined sort of discussion about particular circumstances of people and their salvation if they're not professed members of the Church. So in chapter 2, um, there's there's a lot of things going on in chapter 2, but just for the sake of time, I really want to jump to this particular question. So chapter 1 brings up this idea of elements of sanctification outside of the Church. In chapter 2, um, we have a little bit more of an extended discussion of not exactly what exists outside of the Catholic Church, but what about people who exist outside of the Catholic Church? So we'll jump to paragraph 14, and uh, right before paragraph 14, so at the end of 13, uh, there's been, of course, a, a lot of discussion that, that we've skipped over, but they, they have we have this line, All men are called to be part of this Catholic unity of the people of God, which in promoting universal peace uh, presages it, and they belong to or are related to it in various ways, three groups. Three groups are related to or belong to the, the, the Catholic unity that, that all are called to. So first, the Catholic faithful. Second, all who believe in Christ. And then third, indeed, the whole of mankind, because all men are called by the grace of God to salvation. So the, the Council is saying all three of these groups, Catholics, other Christians, and just the whole world, belong to the church in some way, in, 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 in that they're created to be a part of it, and that salvation is what God wants for them. But how does it work its way out? So the church actually in this document spends a very long paragraph talking about Catholics first, then another paragraph talking about non-Catholic Christians, and then a third paragraph kind of looking even beyond that, which is a fairly unique thing for an ecumenical council to do, um, to, rat, to, to not merely say, well, you ought to be Catholic, here's why, but also to consider what if you're not, what, is, what, are, what are the circumstances uh, under which you might be saved. So in uh, the, the first paragraph 14, it talks about Catholics, and uh, basically the, the, the primary thing that's really important here is this line that whoever knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, but would refuse to enter it or remain in it, could not be saved. Okay, So that's the, the first statement about, I mean, you don't want to talk about a clarity on the necessity of the Church for salvation. If you know that the Catholic Church was founded by Christ and is necessary, and you refuse to enter it or remain, it doesn't seem clear, and the Church is saying, like, it's not clear how you could be saved. Um However, they go on to say there are fully incorporated into the society of the church those who, uh, possessing the Spirit of Christ, accept, listen, her entire system and all the means of salvation given to her and are united with her as a part of her visible bodily structure and through her with Christ who rules through the Supreme Pontiff and the bishops. The bonds which bind men to the church in a visible way are profession of faith, the sacraments, Ecclesial government and communion, and check this out. This is talk. This is Vatican II talking about Catholics. 
He is not saved, however, who through who though part of the body of the church does not persevere in charity. He remains indeed in the bosom of the church, but as it were only in a bodily manner and not in his heart. The church's children should remember that their exalted status is to be attributed not to their own merits, but to the special graces of Christ. If they fail, moreover, to respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only shall they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. That is the church speaking in a pastorally clear way to its own members. Don't you just be so proud that you're Catholic that you forget that you have to actually live a life of faith, hope, and charity? Don't you say, well, I'm Catholic, so I'm good, but I don't really like all of these things that are going on in this, in this way in the church, or you know, I don't have to accept everything. No, no, no. They are fully incorporated into the society of the church who, possessing the Spirit of Christ, accept her entire system and all the means of salvation given to her and are united with the visible bodily structure. So again, if you've gotten the, the impression that Vatican II is sort of soft on the necessity of the church for salvation, um, I'm sorry that that's just not, that's not correct. Lumen Gentium 14 is very clear. Even for a Catholic, your salvation is not just automatic and guaranteed. You have to do it correctly be united to the visible structure of the church, live in faith, hope, and charity, okay? So now, the second group, this is paragraph 15 that we're going to be talking about. What about those who are uh, not Catholic, but they are Christian? Uh, what What is their situation? So first, it, it recognizes that there is a legitimate union with Christ through baptism, uh, that it is good that many of these people accept the sacraments of at least some of the sacraments, um, and many of them even, you know, have de- devotion to the Virgin Mary. However, there is some um, clarification that that doesn't mean that then they don't need to do anything else. So um, it says, in all of Christ's disciples, the Spirit arouses the desire to be peacefully united in the manner determined by Christ as one flock under one shepherd. And later they say that the church exhorts her children to purification and renewal so that the sign of Christ may shine more brightly over the face of the earth. So this is an indication that there are good things present in other Christian communities, especially the devotion to baptism and to the scriptures, but that is still incomplete. Um, And they are called to that Catholic unity. Okay, So Catholics have their own things that they've got to do, Non-Catholic Christians also have some some work to do, um, and their situation is a little bit different. I want to really talk, though, about this this third situation, non-believers or or, or non-Christians, right? What does the Council teach about them? Because it is a a really fascinating example of actually how strong Vatican II is on the need for the Church and on the need for evangelization, and for whatever reason, it just gets a lot of press that makes it seem like— the council had no concern for evangelization, um, and that anybody can be saved, and they don't have to worry about anything that they're doing in their life. And, um, well, that's just not the case. So here is Lumen Gentium 16. We're gonna, I'm going to read this in, kind of in its entirety and talk a little bit about it, and then, and then we'll close up. So, finally, 
Those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the testament and the promises were given and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. Okay, this is the, the Jewish people. On account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of the gifts he makes, nor of the call he issues. Okay? But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. So in the, in the, in the first part, they're talking about the salvation of Jews and that God's call to them is not revoked. That does not, however, mean that, they, that the church has no desire for all to be united into the one faith. Right? It's simply a, po- a positive recognition of the fact that God gave the Jewish people a tremendous gift, and he does not revoke his gifts. Now, the second part of the paragraph goes on to talk about Muslims. Um, and actually, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing. That it, the, the, um, the document uses the language Mohammedans, um, but it was the 60s, and even in scholarship uh, on Islam, um, that was a common term. So we can give the church a little bit of slack there. In the first place among these who acknowledge the Creator are the Mohammedans, who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham along with us, adore the one and merciful God who on the last day will judge mankind. Nor is God far distant from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, for it is he who gives to all men life and breath and all things, and as Savior wills that all men be saved. This language of shadows and images, the footnote is to Acts 17, where Paul is going to the Areopagus and um, talking to uh, basically philosophers about their unknown God, all right? So, in other words, the council is saying to the Jews, to Muslims, to people who kind of don't believe in anything, still salvation is offered. Still God desires their salvation, but listen to sort of these, these clarifying lines as we move through the, to, to the second major part of the paragraph. Okay, um, oh, I, I almost skipped a line. Those also can, can attain to salvation who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and move by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them through the dictates of, of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and with his grace strive to live a good life. So non-believers and, and people who or, or, or people who are, you know, seeking God, but they don't they haven't found the church, or even they're they're non-believers, the church is acknowledging simply that it is possible for them to be saved. And why is that? It's because Christ wants to save everybody. God wants to save everyone. That's his desire, is for our salvation, right? However, there are a lot of um, qualifications that are that you find in the second part of this paragraph that should make it seem pretty clear what the church is saying is that these circumstances shouldn't be ones where people feel real comfortable with their salvation, so here's what, uh, what, I, what I think is really, uh, really interesting about Lumen Gentium 16. Okay. Whatever good is or truth is found amongst these people is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. She knows that it is given by him who enlightens all men so that they finally will have life. But often men, deceived by the evil one, have become vain in their reasonings and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature rather than the creator. 
Or there are some who, living and dying in this world without God, are exposed to final despair. Wherefore, to promote the glory of God and procure the salvation of all of these, and mindful of the command of the Lord, and here it quotes, preach the gospel to every creature, the church fosters the missions with care and attention. So this 17th paragraph, which I'm not going to read through because we're already a little bit over time from our our normal window that we go through, that 17th paragraph, which ends the, the second chapter, is a call to evangelization. So I want to make this one point really, really, really clear. And that is, in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, there are discussions about different groups of people who may not be Catholic, who are not formally united to the Church, and the prospect or possibility of their salvation. And I don't want to deny that for a second. Those people can all be saved. But it is also said in the same breath almost that it is very easy for us when we are not united to the body of Christ, and even when we are, as we already saw in paragraph 14, but in paragraph 16 is talking about those who are not formally part of the church, that it is very easy for them to be deceived, for them to be confused, to wind up serving the creatures rather than the Creator. And it seems urgently uh, clear, I mean, it seems abundantly clear, because of the urgency of evangelization that is called for right after that, that the interpretation that you probably have heard, that, oh yeah, Vatican II sort of didn't say the Church was necessary anymore, and, you know, said anybody can be saved, that that is just a flat-out lie. Uh, at, at best, it is a poor interpretation of the text, because when you read it, kind of following through it closely, all of this, these pieces build towards one another. So chapter 1, which we started with at the beginning, we'll summarize everything here. Chapter 1 is the mystery and function of the Church, where it came from. Well, the Church came from God creating and wanting to raise all people to the divine life. After the fall, it was necessary to have an instrument to do that. So God begins to form covenants with people and gives the people of Israel special gifts to make a people peculiarly his own. That covenant grows and spreads with the desire present in the prophets that the Church might encompass the entire world. Christ then comes to finish this, to establish a new covenant, to open the gospel to everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. The Church is still doing that, still calls everyone, and even, in fact, is able to recognize that if you aren't part of the Church, but you do find salvation, it will only be because of the gifts that properly belong to the Church. So, this is, I think, a good place to stop at the end of the second chapter, Um, and what we'll see here as we go through in the next part Uh, We're going to look at the hierarchy and the laity. Uh, It's really, really, really my favorite part of Lumen Gentium. So I really hope that you stick around for that, and I hope that this has been helpful. And uh, please leave us any comments or questions. Um, We're uh, happy to respond to those and to take those up in future episodes. So thanks, and God bless.